So I just came off of a month of silent retreat. I sat with a monastic named Ajahn Sachido. And as Pauletta and I have been planning to get together for quite some time now, several months, and she had asked what I would like to speak about And you never really know, because <laughs> I don't know the community, I don't know the needs of each person. And then given the tragedy today, considering the richness that the Dharma has offered in my life, there seems like there's both nothing to say and a lot to say, which is strange. And so I thought I'd talk about a topic, which is a topic against the stream. In Pali Sanskrit, this is a patiso tagami, it's a, the Buddha mentioned this phrase in a sutta called the Noble Quest. And I thought about this topic because it has been encouraging in the light of a lot of adversity that I've faced in my life. You know, as we begin a mindfulness practice or coming into a Buddhist community, and as we continue a mindfulness practice and our relationship to the Dharma, uh, it can be really discouraging at times. You know, and I reflect all the time, why meditate? <laughs> why am I doing this? I remember in the beginning, I share this often, it's because I looked at the Buddha and I said, I want that. <laughs> I want that. I want ease, I want peace, I want, I don't, I didn't even really have a word, but I just knew it was so drastically different than what I felt internally. I teach mindfulness in the mental health field um, as well as in our Buddhist community in Nashville. And one of the common misconceptions is that what we're trying to do is stop thinking, right? Clear, clear our mind. And that's really what I want. Because <laughs> if I could just stop all of the stuff, You know, then I could maybe manage a little better in the world and not feel so insecure and so out of place and all of the comparing and judging and the neurotic planning. <laughs> and so my first insight when I started practicing was 
that I couldn't clear my mind. <laughs> and it was a huge gift because what I realized is that I was not my mind. And my teacher Dave is this big tattooed guy and he would sit up there and he's from Massachusetts so he kind of has this style of speaking and he would say in a less gentle way what I did earlier is put aside our desire and discontent he'd say just leave all that shit out in the parking lot <laughs> it will be there for you when you come back right? when you need it and so I, and then I would sit and I would realize that I couldn't leave it in the parking lot that it just kept coming back but with this intention nowhere to go nothing to do no one to be I could continue to walk it back out and say oh, okay here you go you have a place here I could come back into my body back into the sounds back into my breath so that was my second insight. Then I could, then I noticed that I could relate to my mind. I couldn't stop it, but my relationship changed, started to shift. So this is what what I believe we're trying to cultivate here is to bear in mind, and in Buddhism, the mind and the heart are interchangeable. Chitta is the word, so just heart, mind. To bear in our heart whatever comes into the awareness. Fear, worry, restlessness, doubt. And to be curious, what is this like? And uh, I like a Buddhist teacher, a lady named Martine Batchelor. She talks about creativity a lot in Dharma practice. She calls it creative engagement. So I can bear in my heart what's here, this fear, maybe. I can be curious, what is it like? And then I can be creative in how I want to respond to it. And this is the release and suffering is in my response because if I'm stuck to only one habit one way of emotionally reacting one compulsive thinking pattern of fear then I'm a prisoner in a way they talk about in the suttas, the saboteur, the guy that locks the prison gate. And the Buddha has this beautiful passage where he says, I see you, house builder. I see your rafts, your rafters. He said, you will not build this house again, right? I'll not do the same thing that I always do. I'll be more creative with how I engage with stress, fear. Part of why I fell in love with 
Buddhism in particular, this lineage, Theravadan Buddhism, early Buddhist practice, is because it's a, where in the West we have orthodoxy, we have belief-centric tradition, it's a orthopraxy, so it's a practice-based spiritual path. It doesn't really matter what you believe in. matters how we respond, how we engage, what we do. And so in this light, the task, the practice is to fully know dukkha, fully know stress. If we can better understand the conditions that create our suffering, mental, emotional, even behavioral, if we can better understand those conditions, then we can free ourselves from the suffering. So for the same reason, Dharma practice can be quite discouraging because what we're being asked to do is to turn towards what's most difficult to turn towards. Grief, loss, even the inevitability of our death. Some of these really big realities of our, all of our lives. Turning towards opening to... I'm in recovery from... Um, uh, drug addiction. I got clean when I was 18, so I've been clean for 18 or for 10 years. And one of the favorite, you know, phrases that you hear in recovery all the time is uh, like "surrender to win," "let go," right? "Let go." And I would get so frustrated because I would be like. I want to let go. I'm willing to let go. Sign me up for that. That sounds great. <laughs> right? And so what we start to see is we continue through all the frustration of, and through all the pain and through all of the messiness of trying to turn towards our suffering or stress is that we need to let in before we can let go. To fully understand means to let in before we can let go. Another insight, maybe my third insight, just to go with this <laughs> stage, was that compassion actually doesn't really, for me, feel pleasant. I always thought in my mind, compassion, oh, it's this very beautiful, pleasant, you know, open understanding. But there's a bearing with, you know, the definition of karuna, the Pali word for compassion, actually means a movement of the heart in response to pain. Opening to, and a willingness to be with. And so I'm a visual thinker, and so I think compassion, 
who do I know that's compassionate? I think of oftentimes my grandmother. I shared about this, I think, some yesterday. Uh, because she just has this willingness to be with me. She's not even very nice or kind. <laughs> but her willingness is so beautiful. It's so strong. It's like there's no judgment. You know, it's just eyes and ears and presence. No matter what crazy part of my life I'm going through, she can just sit there and you know, that movement towards my pain or that embracing or that opening. So the Buddha said, this is a path that is against the stream. It's counter to culturally, socially, from a nervous system perspective, how I want to react to pain and pleasure for that matter, where I <laughs> hold on for dear life. I'll read a little bit of the sutta. Uh, the, the, to give some context, this is after the Buddha's awakening. I love this because it shows his humanity. He was really struggling and considering whether he was even going to teach. Because this awakening is very subtle and it's very ordinary, this opening and this turning towards, and this looking at the conditions that create his suffering very subtle, ordinary task, but the it's so against the stream, right? And so he doesn't even know if he really wants to teach it, because who's going to want to turn towards their pain, right? And so he said, I considered, and so I'll say the word either Dhamma or Dharma here. And what I mean by Dhamma or Dharma is just what we've been talking about, this turning towards against the stream. I considered this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise, but people love their place, they delight and revel in their place. It's hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground, this dharma. Were I to teach the dharma, and others were not to understand me, this would be tiring and vexing for me. So he's kind of saying this would be a pain in the ass. <laughs> Why should I now reveal what I have reached with difficulty? This dharma is not easily awoken to by those who thrall and desire and hate. 
those dyed by desire, covered by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream, subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. On thinking this over, monks, my mind inclined to inaction, not to teach him the Dharma. And so he had this moment of reflection over his journey and his path, his dedication to waking up. You know, and his conscience got the best of him. And he said, well, there are those with but little dust in their eyes. Right? And they will see, they will know. You know, there are those, like many of us, that for myself, there's this part of me that has courage, that won't give up. You know, in all my experience through active addiction and looking at all the ways that even in addiction I was searching and looking for some ease, right? It's just the wires get crossed, the motivations get diluted sometimes. I think this is really beautiful. The Buddha reflected on his own life and had a memory of himself as a child. This is what encouraged him to even sit under the tree and embark on this path. I think we've all had these experiences as a kid when it was just no pressure. We had all the time in the world, right? We had time to play. We sat down, you know, and saw this, you know, felt the sunshine, saw the the grass, or the park, or wherever, you know. And this is the chitta, this is the heart. The dharma is, is a subtractive process. So, against the stream, right, I'm not actually adding anything to my life. Even though I've got to do the work, right? I've got to sit down and you know, maybe an intention. and But then what do I do? Well, I sit here and what I do is I set aside all of the stuff, the plans and the stresses. And, the, and I observe and I see what's important, what's valuable, what's helpful, what does my heart resonate with. And I develop that goodness. I uh, tap into that metta, that ease, that well-being. A big part of the practice is renunciation. If you come, it's a, such a stale and not a popular topic. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
I heard renunciation, I was like, what am I going to have to give up, right? But, you know, the word uh, in Pali Sanskrit for renunciation is nikama. My favorite definition of this word is not needing anything extra. And so that has this sense of subtraction to it, of how can I, as he talks about in this sutta, instead of delighting and reveling in all of the places that I need to be and who I need to become, and once I get the job, the girl, the right amount of money, the, you know, whatever. Instead, he says, you know, we find this ground, this dharma, and we don't need anything extra. It's, uh, I think it was... Ajahn Sumedho, maybe, that said, right now it's like this. It's one of my favorite meditation instructions. Right now it's like this. He says, so, but uh, people delight and revel in their place. So I want to talk about the place a little bit. Traditionally, we could call this place the stream that we're going against as greed, hatred, and delusion, the three poisons in Buddhism. Very strong words. <laughs> but maybe in light of events, even like today, it's very alive and well. So the first place that I delight and revel in <laughs> quite a bit is in myself, self-obsession, who I am, who I need to be, am I a good enough teacher, am I a good enough friend and lover, or do I make enough money? It's, uh, Buddhist scholar named Stephen Batchelor talks about this place, so he describes place a little bit. So why do people delight and revel in their place? He said, because people are blinded to the fundamentally unpredictable and insecure nature of their existence by attachment to their place. One's place is that to which one is most strongly bound. It is the foundation on which the entire edifice of one's identity is built. It is formed through identification with a physical location and a social position by one's religious and political beliefs. Through that instinctive conviction of being a solitary ego, One's place is where one stands and whence one takes a stand against everything that seems to challenge what is mine. This stance is your posture vis-a-vis -vis the world. 
It encompasses everything that lies on this side of the line that separates you from me. Delight in it creates a sense of being fixed and secure in the midst of an existence that is anything but fixed and secure. Loss of it, one fears, would mean that everything one cherishes would be overwhelmed by chaos, meaninglessness, or madness. We create stories of ourselves to find security, to find identity, to find a way to validate our insecurities, to tell me, oh, I'm okay, I'm safe, this is who I am. But then when these roles change, as they do throughout our lives, and we see this as we age, as our children leave, as people pass, as our jobs change, our identities, we grieve the loss of them. And so finding a way amidst this grief and this loss and this constant flux and change is the way of the Dharma. And not that it's pretty or that it's the spiritual bypass of, you know, I don't have a self and I'm going to refer to myself in third person now. (laughs) But instead, I have a self, but it's changing. And it's never really quite what I think and hope that it would be. (laughs) So that's against the stream to start to question and inquire, what am I? And this is a great practice. What am I if I'm not this? What am I if I'm not this? If I don't get the promotion, if I don't... We start to confront our fears and our insecurities. Another place, and perhaps in a way a more difficult place that we delight and revel in, is uh, what is called the pleasure-pain dichotomy. And this is just in the sensory world that my nervous system is wired such that I want to feel good <laughs> all the time for as long as I can, right? And so all of the little neurotic ways that I manage this nervous system you know, turning the thermostat a notch up, a notch down, cracking the windows, rolling them all the way down. No, it's too cold, rolling them up. I saw this on my month-long retreat, and it was so ridiculous to watch, because, you know, it's below freezing. I was in um, the mountains of New Mexico, and staying in a tent, it had a heater, but the heater had one setting, which was really hot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so waking up every couple hours, I'll turn it off, and then 
icicles in my beard, <laughs> getting up and turning it back on, <laughs> getting two sleeping bags instead of one, and really suffering you know, over how can I manage to make this comfortable the rest of my trip. And physical pain can be really interesting to work with because there's the pain, there's the actual felt experience of this moment. And then there's the conditioned reaction of my mind, the story about the pain. Oh, it's going to be here, I've got to do this, or if I don't move, or if I don't, you know, and... And so a really helpful ground for pain, especially physical pain, can be the space of the body. I said this at some points during the meditation tonight of noticing or practicing emptying the mind, the heart, the body into the ground. So just feeling around and saying, oh, this is cold on my face right now. This is cold on my hands right now. My chest is pretty warm. My stomach's pretty warm. My lower body, my feet are a little cold. But there are these, there's more going on here than just what I'm fixated on. In neuroscience, they call this the negativity bias. We have, uh, right, our brain has fortunately taken good care of us over thousands and thousands of years of evolution and has become hyper-attuned to all of the things that we don't like, <laughs> moving beyond just physical pain to people we don't like and want to avoid and emails we're postponing for a later time. So against the stream is having the curiosity and again this compassion, this willingness to consider is there more here? The Buddha gives some great discourses on something called the second arrow which is all of the mental anguish that we create on top of the already present pain. So there can be a really difficult thing that I'm going through in my life and you know, my stories about myself, my incessant need to make it comfortable, to resolve the conflict right away. It's just creating more suffering on top of the pain. And so he, he was saying, well, if you can turn towards and open to the pain, we do what we can, because we can't always, right? I have a meditation teacher, a guy named George Haas, says sometimes you need to bear down and sometimes you need to back off. But turning towards and feeling into and seeing if, if I can just be with the first arrow, the pain itself, 
maybe all of the anguish doesn't have to flare up so much. So the another piece, which maybe I won't go into as much because I've kind of touched on it a little bit, is another place is around our views and opinions, which actually I could talk about this for several weeks, <laughs> considering our political environment and... The Buddha said that nothing causes more suffering in the world than clinging to views. You know, it's not even necessarily a particular type of view. He said just fixing. And what I've learned, especially as I'm starting to get older, is how much I don't know. <laughs> I'm in this training program with Pauletta, and I'm one of the youngest people in the whole training. One of, out of a hundred people, maybe in the bottom three. And I'm actually a pretty naturally arrogant person. <laughs> and so I can go into situations very conceptually and analytically inclined. You know, and then you have all these views and opinions about each person, and, oh, I know this type of person, I know this type, I've sat retreat with this type of person. <laughs> right, and then you meet the person, you get to know them, and it's humbling. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite scary, the power of the mind to suggest, you know, this perception of everything. It's automatic. I don't have to do anything, right? So that's so against the stream to consider that what I'm considering right now is likely wrong. <laughs> or not the whole truth, at least. In Zen Buddhism, they talk about beginner's mind a lot, which is practicing with a type of curiosity as if every moment was a new experience that you've never seen or have any idea about. It can be very liberating to reconsider. And so the last thing before we have some discussion together, I just wanted to briefly share how do we then develop a ground, right? These are the places. Well, the Buddha's first instruction before meditation, and before anything else really, was maybe even first, was to pay attention to who we hang out with, which I think is brilliant and wise association. You know, we're the most social animal that exists. I'm so influenced by those who I spend time with. I, I even start talking like them and, um, you know, and so being really careful or just considering in our core group of friends, 
you know, how can I develop three or four friends or a sangha like we have here, of people that I can be vulnerable and authentic with, right? People that I can share honestly with about my struggles. So he said, nothing causes more suffering than fixed views. And he said, only, he, he said, two things create the conditions for wisdom, continuous awareness, mindfulness, and the words of a wise friend. How to develop ground so through our social lives and also through service. <clears throat> Far more popular in traditions in Thailand and Burma. People serve monastics food every day and they delight, they enjoy, they go out of their way to come serve the monastics food. It's like a very beautiful uh, cultural experience. You know, and so I think it can be so rewarding to, and I, for me, I have to set an intention, and I even think even uh, like New Year's resolutions I was never very keen on. But now we have an intention-setting ceremony. I wear this bracelet, and that was my intention this year, is to spontaneously do acts of service. So if I have the thought to do it, to try to do it if I can. And it's interesting how my mind will consider this is inconvenient, you don't have the time, so you know, but then the reward is tenfold, right? How much effort I put in. It's like seeing someone's face lighten or even spending time with someone a little longer. So developing ground, it also creates a safer sense of world, the world we live in. And also moving into talking about just, you know, holding the precepts, which I won't go into, but basically the five precepts are to not cause harm. It's amazing that when I intend and hold the intention of not causing harm, that I actually feel safer in the world. Part of this masculine conditioning that I uh, experience, and as do I think a lot of men, I work with adolescents and a lot of male populations, is that you know there's this masculine strength in cynicism and distrust and competition. You know, but considering hanging around people that are willing to break down these stereotypes and considering service and holdings precept of not harming, it's like this threat or this feeling of competition can fall away a little bit just by holding my behavior, right? And then, of course, we look at cultivating mindfulness, heart practice, bhavana, bhavana, cultivation practice, slowing down, taking 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, 
And so finding ground allows our defenses to soften. When our defenses soften, we can start to see what's been in place. And we can see the suffering. And then we can feel and experience the release. I'm really grateful 